under such fire and such condemnation, yet the truth of it still exists in its entirety today, and we just see your sovereign hand over that. Uh, and thank you for what it means to our lives, particularly the grace that you've shown us through your son, Jesus. He gave his life so that we would have life instead. And Father, you restored that relationship with us, that through sin in which we're born, we are separated from you. But through the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, you restored us back to yourself. So we just thank you for these truths. We thank you for the confidence that we have that Jesus is the light of the world. And just look forward to this uh, section of scripture, Father, and the truth that it has to offer us. Soften our hearts, open our ears. Father, just make us vessels that are um, willing to hear and understand and apply the truth of it as we acknowledge your authority and your sovereignty over it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Are we reading from John chapter 8? From verse 12 to verse 30. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, Here you are, appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you have no idea what, where I come from or where I am going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true. Because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law it is written, of two witnesses is true. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they asked him, Where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts, near the place where the offerings were put. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more Jesus said to them, I am going away and you will look for me and you will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. This made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. Well, friends, one of the things about living in Australia today... Um, 
and maybe you resonate with this, is that it's actually pretty rare for any, any of us to experience total darkness. Um, there's usually a light on somewhere, whether it's the kind of warm, comforting glow of your iPhone or the, uh, the, kind of the, the city lights burbling away in the distance. Uh, there's usually a light on somewhere. I, I, I have this distinct memory, though, when I was um, younger. Uh, I remember going caving with a group. We kitted ourselves out with helmets and torches. Um, but once we were kind of deep inside the caves, so there was no light that could get in anywhere from outside, the instructor got us all around uh, and got us all to switch off all of our lights. Maybe you've had a similar sort of experience. It was quite bizarre for me because um, I don't think up to that point I'd really ever experienced this kind of total utter darkness. Uh, it, was, uh, it, it, was, it was quite weird to be able to wave, have your eyes, know my eyes are open and wave my hand in front of my face like this but have no sense that it was there at all. Um, I remember, even though I knew I was in good hands, you know, I knew I was in good hands with my guide, uh, I still had this moment where, um, when everything was dark, of feeling kind of utterly um, helpless and, uh, and starting to even get a little panicky uh, until he had mercy on us and told us we could switch our lights back on. And then you get, uh, you get that huge relief of being able to actually see, oh, I actually do have a hand. That's good. Very good. Um, it's a really powerful thing, isn't it? Darkness and light. It's not surprising that this contrast between darkness and light captures our imaginations. If you're a sci-fi fan, you, you know it's a kind of major theme of the Star Wars movies. Uh, one of them just came out recently, all about the kind of dark side and the light side always balancing and fighting against each other in a perpetual struggle, one never completely beating the other. Uh, It's the kind of Eastern philosophy of the yin-yang view of life. Light and dark always present, always balancing each other out. Well, the imagery of light and darkness gets used all through the Bible as well. Um, But it gets used in a very different way. So all of that. The realities of light and darkness the Bible speaks about aren't just kind of fun themes for an evening at the movies, and they're not kind of intriguing ideas for armchair philosophers. When the Bible talks about light and darkness, it is talking about a life-changing and a life-giving reality. It's a reality that turns, it all turns on the concrete historic person of Jesus who died and rose again. And we're going to see Jesus in action again today and we're picking up the story where, where we left it off um, not uh, last week but last year before Christmas. If you're with us then you'll know we travelled through John's Gospel up to this point. We did look last week, at, if you have your Bible you can see that passage in John chapter 8. At the start of the chapter, we talked about that last week, um, but which in all likelihood isn't original to this part of John's Gospel. If you want to explore that, chat to me later or catch up online. But the story picks up in verse 12, where we left off at the end of chapter 7. So it was a while ago we were there, so I just wanted to have a a brief recap of some of the things we talked about there. Uh, So Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem for a major festival, 
one of the major festivals of the year called the Feast of Tabernacles. It's like schoolies on steroids, if you remember that from last year. Uh, but uh, Not Victor Harbour, but Jerusalem, the national centre. People from all around the country coming to live in tents around the city um, uh, for this week-long celebration. They're, they're there to remember and celebrate God's rescue of his people out of slavery in Egypt, to remember his protection of them as they came out of Egypt, uh, to remember that he provided for them through their 40-year-long wandering in the desert before they came to their promised land. They lived in tents for the week to remember how their ancestors lived through those 40 years. And there were two great festivals at this, uh, two great ceremonies at this festival. One you can see on the screen there, this water ceremony. Um, we looked at that last year where each, each day of the, the uh, festival, the big jug of water would be taken from this pool and took, taken up to the temple and poured out, sort of symbolising um, the, the provision of God for his people in the desert. And he provided water for them. And, and we saw in chapter 7 how Jesus, right at this moment when the water's, you know, probably when the water's being poured out, Jesus gets up and says, if anyone is thirsty... Really thirsty, not just physically thirsty. If anyone is spiritually thirsty, if anyone is thirsty, Jesus says, as this water is being poured out to remember God's provision, he says, come to me and drink. Everything that water symbolized, God's gift of life and satisfaction for his people, Jesus says, was all pointing to himself. He is the one that can satisfy you forever with living water. So that was one ceremony and we saw last year how Jesus takes this and um, redirects it to himself. But there was another great ceremony that happened in this festival and it happened at night time. So we'll go to the next picture you can see up there. Um, at night time, there were these four huge pillars set up in the courts outside the temple. These pillars were massive. One account says they're about 20 metres tall. If you can picture that, it's, uh, they're, they're huge. And on each of these pillars were four... You can't see it in that picture, but each of these four pillars were four huge bowls full of oil. Um, uh, so there's this, these 16 in all, you know, all these, these big bowls. And every night the, during, through the festival, the bowls were filled with oil and um, had a wick coming up the middle. And each night someone would, um, some brave soul would climb up a, up, up a large ladder and light all these lamps, these beacons. Um, the temple was on a hill above the city. You don't really get that sense. This is an artist's sort of reproduction, not the real thing. But the temple was on a hill on the city and, and it would have given out this light that everyone could see. Uh, kind of like the, we heard about the Olympic Games earlier. Kind of like the cauldron that gets lit at the Olympic Games. Um, this beacon, at the Games at least, this sort of beacon that you can see from far off that speaks about hope and Peace in a fractured and unstable world. Now that's the Olympic beacon, but this, this, this beacon in, the, in this Feast of Tabernacles, uh, it wasn't actually, it wasn't really uh, something that was supposed to inspire the people into greater effort or action. Uh, it wasn't a kind of aspirational symbol of 
world peace or hope for the people, it, it was there to remind them of God's actions, of what God had done to save them. <clears throat> All that 40 years between being brought out of Egypt and before they went into the promised land, God had led his people constantly. If you know the story, in a pillar of fire that would lead his people on through the wilderness. God's glory would come down in this brilliant light on the tabernacle. It's like a movable temple. It's a bit confusing because it was the Feast of Tabernacles, talking about the Feast of Tents. Uh, but there was this other special tent, special tabernacle that was like a movable temple that went with them and God's glory would come down in glorious light on the tabernacle. It was this powerful symbol of God's saving work, his presence with his people to guide them. It was a symbol of hope for the future. Um, if God had done that for his people in the past, he would continue to do it and into the future and you get these imagery throughout the Old Testament prophets of God doing just that, this hope for light to come. And then you get to verse 12 of chapter 8. So with all of that in your mind, uh, it's probably still on this last and greatest day of the feast um, with these four beacons Maybe we're not told, perhaps at night time with them lit, but certainly kind of with them fresh in everyone's mind. Jesus gets up in these temple courts and speaks again to the people. And we're told in verse um, 12, he says to the people these, I mean, shocking words, right? I am the light of the world. I am the light, Jesus says. Uh, it's one of um, seven throughout John's gospel. John likes his numbers and doing things. Kind of, he has these seven I am statements throughout his gospel where Jesus reveals these deep truths about himself. And this is the second one. We, had, we read one a, a while ago where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Um, he, I am the light of the world. At, at the festival of lights stood the Lord of light, the God of glory. I am the light of the world. You see what Jesus says here? I just wanted to pause on, we'll spend actually probably most of our time just in this verse and we'll uh, hear the rest of this passage. But um, when Jesus says this, you see what he does? He assumes the reality of darkness. I'll say that again. When Jesus says he is the light of the world, he assumes that there is such a thing as darkness. Um, one of the criticisms you sometimes hear, and maybe you felt this yourself or heard this from others, is that Christianity is like a crutch for people who can't handle the real world. Have you heard something like that? Um, if, maybe if you're a Marxist, it's the opiate of the masses that dulls, dulls us to reality um, so that we can all be controlled. It's a little bit like a kid's comfort blankie. You know? um, when things get too hard, you just close your eyes and hold on to it and don't think about things too much. <laughs> Delude yourself inside your little bubble that everything's all right. <laughs> well, 
Uh, maybe you've heard something like that said about Jesus, about Christian. When you get to know the real Jesus, you, you just see that you couldn't get further from the truth than that. Jesus never glosses over evil and suffering and pain in this world. He doesn't invite people into a nice sealed bubble to just put a smile on their face and pretend things are okay when really they're not. That's not the Jesus of the Gospels. Jesus invites people to face reality, to see this world as it really is, to see the darkness of this world as it really is. It can be a kind of confronting thing to realise about Jesus, but friends, it can also be an incredibly liberating thing. Uh, it is a relief on the one hand for people who feel that pressure to pretend everything's okay when they know it's not. Um, Jesus knew it wasn't. He knew there was darkness. And that's what he came to, uh, to, to fix, to address um, but it's a relief too for so much of the kind of moral um, confusion and relativism in so much of our culture. There's a quote coming up on the screen. Just consider these words from a leading atheist scholar. Um, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replica- replication, some people are always going to get hurt, others... Other people are going to get lucky and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. You see, if you follow this line of thought, friends, Those things that you experience so deeply as real darkness, that evil evil thing done against you, that sorrow and indignation you feel when a loved one dies, uh, even the darkness inside of you, the way that you act in selfish and cruel ways and it just sort of comes out of you, On this line of thoughts, those things are not actually dark or evil or unjust or wrong. They're just indifferent, actually. They're just indifferent. The strong eat the weak and that's just the way things are. But do you see the contrast with Jesus? There is darkness in this world and it is real And it is evil. And you're not imagining it. You don't have to pretend it doesn't exist. But Jesus says in verse 12, Into this darkness, I am the light of the world. We've already heard John say at the start of his gospel that the light, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The light shines in the darkness. And this is John's big, one of the big themes of his gospel. The darkness has not overcome it. Okay, 
It's an important thing to, to, to sort of realise, right, that Jesus recognises, he opens up, he doesn't hide from, he affirms the reality of darkness in this world. But secondly, you notice how exclusive what he says here is. I am a light in the world. That's not what he says, is it? <laughs> I am one of many lights in the world. It's not what Jesus says. This is Jesus himself saying this. I am the light of the world. And not just for some people. He's the light of the world. He's not just for religious types, not just for people who live in the West or the East or Africa or Australia. There is only one light that can overcome the darkness of this world. And that light is Jesus. So you can sort of sense, going through all of that, you can sense how huge this claim is, can't you, that Jesus is making? You can sense how huge it is. Um, and he just, gets, he just keeps going, you know, keep going in, uh, in, still in verse 12, I think. Um, sorry, sorry, Pam. Uh, just back to that verse. He keeps going and says, Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. So not does he make a huge claim about himself, he makes a huge claim about people who follow him. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This temple that Jesus is standing outside of and the lights that were there, they all symbolise God's presence with his people. And now Jesus says, you want to know God, you want to experience his presence with you. Look at me, Jesus says. What this great feast symbolised, what it pointed towards, what it was just a shadow of, is here in reality. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And from now on, if you want to have the light of life, everything turns on your relationship to Jesus. Whoever follows me, in John, that's the same as, sort of same, the same thing as trusts me, believes in me. We're going to see that again later in this passage. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's a huge claim, and everyone around him knows it. And if we've heard it rightly with all that stuff in mind, we'll know something of how huge that claim is. Uh, and the rest of the passage we had read is really the fallout of that claim as the, the people around him, especially the religious leaders, the Pharisees, um, they, uh, they, they kind of confront him about this claim. We've seen this tension building up to now in John's Gospel and it just keeps ramping up between Jesus and the, the leaders, the Pharisees. They, they challenge Jesus in verse 13. Um, and this is interesting, isn't it? Um, from verse 13, the Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness, your testimony is not valid. They're making a kind of legal procedural argument. So they've got uh, the light of life standing in front of them, offering them light and life. And they raise a procedural objection. Uh, They've done this before in John. Uh, They're basically saying, uh, according to our law, our customs, you need two people to substantiate claims like this. You need, you need extra witnesses. 
And it's kind of like we saw last week in that passage at the start of John 8. Jesus doesn't buy into it. He doesn't play their games. Uh, he, he, he doesn't need other people to, to back him up, actually. In verse 14, he says, um, My testimony is valid. Um, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. And if you think about it, given the hugeness of Jesus' claim, how else could it be? That is, if Jesus was to bring in some other people to kind of back up his claim, he would be saying that they have, they're like the specialist witness uh, and they have more authority than himself in a way. Now, whatever you rest your argument on is what you give authority to. But Jesus is saying... Well, if, if this is who he is, if we're hearing him rightly, there is no one higher than him. Um, there's no other expert witness he could call that would add authority to his claim because as the eternal son of God, he has all authority. Um, one ancient theologian put it like this, only God is a fit witness to himself. Only God is a fit witness to himself. Um, Jesus has no other human he'll appeal to in order to strengthen his case. He's not going to buy into those games, but he does, in verse 18, have his father. Jesus reveals, and we've seen this through John's Gospel again, uh, particularly back in chapter 5, but Jesus reveals God, uh, the, uh, the God of the universe, as Trinity, three persons in one God, the Father eternally loving his Son in the bond of the Spirit. And Jesus says, if you, want, if you really want a witness to back up my claim, the only one that will do is God the Father himself. All right, there's a lot in here in these, these last uh, verses. We're not going to get to it all. but um, Do you notice how Jesus uses all of this to keep kind of filling in what he means by the whole idea of darkness, what it means to walk in darkness. We've talked on some of them. There are many ways in which each of us experience the darkness of this world. But Jesus, in this passage here, he kind of presses home to these Pharisees the real darkness, the kind of heart of darkness, the darkness underneath all darknesses. Uh, and you see it uh, in this section and the next one. Here, it's the darkness of not knowing God. You see that from verse 19. They, they can't get Jesus. They don't follow him. He says in verse 19, If they knew him, they would know his father as well. They don't know him. Uh, they do know that, that he's saying something shocking to them. Uh, of all the people who should know God, they know he's talking about God. Now, of all the people who should know God, it was these guys. The religious leaders of the people of the one true God. Jesus is saying all your learning, all your position, everything you cling to, despite all of that, you don't actually know God because you don't recognize me. His son. You are in the dark. I am here. 
The light of the world is here and you can't see me, Jesus says. You won't accept me and if you reject me, you actually reject the God that you claim to know. And that's not all. Uh, from verse 21 on, Jesus, uh, Jesus, he knows his own identity. He knows where he's come from. He knows where he's going. He's confident in that. Uh, but you notice that these people arguing with him have no place where he's going. It's not just that they don't know God here and now. Jesus says they don't have a place in God's future purposes, in the light and life that he will bring in. Um, In verse 21 and again in verse 24, you read those kind of confronting words that those who don't believe will die in their sins. It's Jesus at his most confronting, right? Uh, The darkness of not knowing God is all part of this deepest darkness, the darkness of our sin. Our sin, our rejection of God, our rejection of his good rule, our sin that cuts us off from him, that breaks our relationship with him, that puts us under his rightful condemnation. The sobering reality Jesus paints is that there is a darkness, but it's not just out there. It's in here too. Well, the guys Jesus is speaking to get confused. Uh, they, they can't get what he's talking about. In verse 22, there's this back and forward about that. Verse 25, their confusion, I think, turns to indignation and they ask this question, well, who are you? And Jesus answers, I've been telling you all along, but if you'd been listening properly, you'd know, but if you'd really received my word, you'd know. And then he says, but, and you will know. Um, so there's, there's more in here, we're skimming through, but... Um, uh, we read earlier that his hour hadn't yet come, but Jesus says his hour will come from verse 28. We'll read from, I'll read from there. Um, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that no, I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. So he's saying they don't know him, and he says in that ignorance of, of Jesus... They're ignorant of God. And the future that he declares to them is in store is that they will die in their sins. But there will be a time, he says, when, well, when you have lifted up, then, then when they will know him. Um, I, I don't think he's saying that at, uh, he's talking about the cross here, right? When they've lifted up the Son of Man. Don't think he's saying that at that point all of these people hearing will then put their trust in him. Um, I think what Jesus is getting at is that the cross where he is lifted up to die, that is when he would shine brightest. Um, That would be the full, final, public revealing of who he is and what he came to do to make it possible for people not to die in their sins by dying in their place for them. Uh, To be raised again to eternal life, to inextinguishable lights, so that those who follow him would walk in his life, 
receive his life and walking in that light. We're going to go on next week to see how this conversation develops. Um, it keeps going back and forth with these religious leaders, but and, and we'll, we'll maybe touch on some of those things we've skimmed over today. But it's worth just pausing here with this incredible claim of Jesus and asking ourselves where where will you find where where do you find your light? Where do you look for for light? Um, we will often know the answer to that question by what we're most passionate about, what we're most convinced will bring light to the darkness. Um, there are lots of different options, and lots of them are very good. So when I say these, don't think that I'm saying that they're bad in themselves, they're not. Um, but there are lots of options for where you find the light of the world. Uh, education is a very popular one, right? If only we were all more educated, then light would come. Um, activism, reform on any kind of level. Maybe more personally, uh, for each of us individually, my control over my diary is the light of my world. <laughs> uh, my family is the light of my world. My financial stability is the light of my world. Go on and on and on, right? All good things that do have their own light. They do shine a light, right? But the, the problem is when faced with the deep darkness of our ignorance of God, the deep darkness of our own sin and everything that flows from it, whatever light they give, well, the darkness will overcome it. It's kind of like a flickering candle in a storm, in a way. When faced with that deep darkness, what we need more than anything, what all those good things rightly flow out of and are rightly pursued and loved and enjoyed flowing out of this, but what we need more than anything is the inexhaustible light of Jesus. He offers it to all who follow him, to all who believe in him. And we're told in verse 30 that on that day, many did believe in him. Many did receive his light and life and promise that they would not die in their sins. Now friends, in the full story of the Bible, the hope of the gospel is this, that trusting in Jesus means that you will not die in your sins. But it also means more. It, it, it does mean that, but it's not only taking away of a negative, it's replacing it with something far more glorious. I'm just going to finish with this passage from... Uh, the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, paints a picture of this coming future that God promises to bring about. It, in, in this rich symbolism, it picks up this image of light. Um, and they'll come up on the screen. Um, John, the same author of this gospel, in Revelation, uh, says that God reveals this um, future. Uh, he, he, he sees this new heavens and new earth and in, uh, New Jerusalem and 
But in verse 22 of chapter 21, he says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, that's Jesus, are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's another way of saying those who believe in Jesus, who follow him, who put their trust in him. The thing about light is it clarifies things for us, isn't it? It helps us to see the way, things the way they really are. Uh, if we walk in Jesus' light, it'll mean that we will see the darkness for what it really is. It'll mean that we'll see that in the face of such darkness, our only hope is Jesus himself in his death and resurrection. It'll mean we'll have a confidence in the coming future that God will bring about where there will be no more darkness, no crying, no sickness, no sadness or death, but where light and life will have the final word. Let's pray. Can we pray? Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that um, he acknowledges the reality of darkness. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, for us, we can acknowledge that too. Not only the darkness outside of us, but even the darkness inside us. Thank you that Jesus comes to address both of those things. Thank you that he has victory over all that is evil and wicked and in his resurrection, he has begun this new heavens and new earth and that he promises this great future that we've just read about. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have through his death for us on the cross. And we thank you for everything that means. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you might teach us to walk in his light. And for any of us here who are not trusting in Christ, please stir our hearts to put our faith in, in Jesus. For all of us, Lord, please teach us what it looks like uh, to follow him all our days and to walk in his light. And we pray that for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.